Hello. This episode starts off with a content warning. Not for explicit language or anything like that, but for extreme levels of grumpiness, because I am done with July. It has been the worst month I can ever remember, and it's caused me no end of problems. July was meant to be my relaxing smug period, but instead I've been working harder than ever just to keep things going. I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer. Welcome back. You join me in Richard, sitting in my camp chair, feeling thoroughly sorry for myself. It's the end of July, but no outdoor recording today. Nope, because it is raining far, far too much. We are fast approaching the business end of things, so this episode we'll be seeing how the crops are getting on and looking in a bit more detail at how you actually brew. Sounds great, sounds jolly. Why the long face, you ask? Well, in a word, weather. Even allowing for the fairly rough weather in my planning, I don't think I could have predicted what the last two weeks was going to be like. The month started off fairly promising. The barley was looking thick and healthy, making the most glorious waves as the breeze blew across it. It was really quite lovely. I would literally run up the steps and across the allotment each day to get to my plot so I could see how it had changed and grown, how it was beginning to turn into that classic golden yellow colour that everyone associates with lovely, summery, ripening barley. I had completely forgotten about the hierarchy of danger and the idea that this might not all go perfectly. In my head, at least, I was cruising for a bounteous crop of so much grain that I could lie on the floor and make the barley equivalent of a snow angel in it. That was until a fortnight ago. I came up as usual to check on the plot and to do a little weeding when I saw what I can only describe as a five-foot-wide meandering path straight through the middle of the main barley bed. I don't think I can really express how gutted I was, um, instantly depressed, furious, and utterly confused by what could have caused this. Uh, without realising it, I spent 20 minutes just stood there, staring, uh, running through what it could be in my mind. I wondered if the neighbouring bull had got loose again, if it had broken onto the allotments and, and just caused havoc walking through the beds as it had done earlier in the year. Uh, maybe a badger had snuffled and shoved its way through, or a deer perhaps, I would no idea. I even imagined Theresa May sneaking in at night to run through my miniature barley field, laughing maniacally as she disappeared into the night. But it turns out though, the real cause was my old friend, the British Summer. After some whinging on social media, the general verdict came back from those who know more than me that this was a classic flattening from heavy winds and intense rain. As the weight of the wet ears gets pummeled by the storm winds that have been a constant feature of July, eventually something has to give and down it goes, taking down neighbouring plants in a strange, inconsistent domino effect, which ended in about a third of mine lying flat on the ground. Now it doesn't mean that all of those barley plants are dead, but it will seriously affect how well they ripen and it means that the ears are now on the ground where they can't dry as easily and are more susceptible to damp and disease, which is now looking like a real risk because it just hasn't stopped raining. Two weeks since that first storm, it's just been continuous, repetitive downpours. So, we get to mid-July and I'm down to 65% of my barley. But the storms weren't done there, oh no. What feels like a personal campaign directed at my plot continued for the next two weeks, leaving even less barley standing. I'd say... About now, I'm under 50% of what I started off with uh, at the beginning of July, uh, and it's amazing how the plot suddenly feels like an exposed, fragile little piece of land that is absolutely in the lap of the gods. Um, I, I joked 
at least thought of a couple of months ago about how exposed this, this site might be, but I just thought it'll be fine. Don't worry, we'll get through it okay. I've got the shade fencing now all around the barley bed to offer some kind of protection, but it's clearly not enough to protect from the rain and storms. I know I joked about nicking the local cricket covers, but I'm starting to give it some serious thought because at this rate, I will have nothing left come the harvest. And it wasn't just the barley that suffered in the storms. Do you remember my comments about the hot pole not being the ideal structure? Yep, definitely not a good structure. Not only has my array of converging lines allowed the different hot plants to create this sort of giant clump at the top, but the physical structure isn't that hot either. It came up a few days after the initial storms to check on the hops. Uh, I don't really know why, I hadn't planned to do so. Uh, it was absolutely hammering it down and blowing a gale again, but something didn't feel quite right, and I'm so very, very glad that I did. It was chucking it down with rain, uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 mile an hour winds, and as I reached the plot, I could see the top five feet of the pole. It had bent over 90 degrees, really, complete right angle with this very, very uncomfortable curve. Um, with each gust, I could hear the canes cracking slightly uh, and splitting. is a horrible sound. Um, had I not popped up there and then, I think there is every chance that the pole would have snapped and my beloved crucial hops would have been done for. So I legged it back home as fast as I could. I chucked some strong timber in the car and then I came back up, spent the next hour on a stepladder, lashing and screwing the reinforcements to the pole. I'm sure it wasn't quite as dramatic as the scene it was in my head. Uh, I felt like a fisherman in the storms, desperately repairing the mast or bringing in the sails for fear of losing the boat to the waves. So, this is not going well, to put it mildly. But it is not all doom and gloom. The storms have flushed out what few aphids the predators hadn't taken care of on the hops, and very recently there are birds starting to pop up all over the hop plants, especially uh, that head of the clump at the top. These look like small flower heads made up of soft white spikes, and it's these that will eventually grow to become the all-important hop cones, assuming huh, we get the weather right. Wyndham visited me shortly after the latest storm, and he reiterated that the hops need a certain amount of light and a high enough temperature to ripen. So, if August carries on like July, we're going to have a serious problem. Not just a potentially poor crop of hops, but there is an increased risk of mildew and disease that will seriously affect those hop plants. To counter this, I'm going to cut away all of the leaves and the foliage at the bottom foot or so of each hot plant, and I'm going to cross my fingers that we'll see some good weather from now on. It is quite clear that the decisions I made throughout the first three or four months, roughly, will decide how well my crops fare as they face the growing threat on the hierarchy of danger, the weather. Of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and I would change no end of stuff uh, if I found myself doing it again, but we are where we are. Of course, the other silver lining, and positive to take away at the moment, is that the water butt is full to brimming. Uh, I've closed the tap now, obviously, and within the space of three or four weeks, I have myself over 200 litres of water. So, in all, though, it's been a bit stressful, and I'm, I'm now in a worse position than I was before the summer started, I think. Anyway, promptly putting our heads back in the sand to ignore the mounting disaster that are my hops and barley, how about the yeast? You'll remember that back in late June, Guy and David were running my samples through the lab to see if we had any yeast that would work in the final brew. Well, earlier on, I paid Guy a quick visit to the university to see what they had found. Right, I'm back in the LSI at the University of Exeter. It is two weeks since uh, I came in with the samples and we went through what Guy and David were going to do with them. I'm sat with Guy. Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm scared to ask the, the question, really, but I might as well just, just come out with it. Do we have yeast? 
Yes and no. <laughs> oh, okay, go on. So we we have uh, some fungal growth right. growing on the plates. Uh, one of them is a yeast. Okay. Or at least in the group of yeasts. Um, it's something I probably can't pronounce. It's Mechnikawia. Right. Um, which I've looked up and is a type of yeast that is often used in wine production. Okay. But it's commonly in beer production considered a spoilage yeast. So perhaps not one we want to brew with necessarily. Okay. But it is a yeast. Right. Um, we have a bunch of other things as well, such as Cryptococcus and Oreobasidium. So these are just other fungi that mm -hmm. are just growing in the environment. So not uh, Cerevisiae we were hoping for, no. Okay. But David has a bunch more samples growing in the lab now. Right. And they have been PCR'd and we'll be going for sequencing tomorrow. Okay, so the next set of samples, mm -hmm. if those aren't Cerevisiae in any of those, sure. is that the end of the road? It's not the end of the road, no. I think we have two backup plans for this. Uh, one, we've we've taken these samples very early on in the year, so perhaps there isn't uh, that many available sugars for the yeast to colonize at the moment. There's not many fruits available. A lot of these were from flowers or, or leaf samples that we've taken so far. Or we could do a sort of more, um, a different approach, and we put some wort out into the environment in a little beaker with a muslin top on it and hope that some things fall into it or attracted to it and uh, start auto-fermenting. And then from there, we can do the same process, take that as a sample, check what it is. Okay. Good so we're, we've got a cliffhanger. We've got a second cliffhanger, yeah, haven't we? A we? second cliffhanger indeed, yes. And right. fingers crossed that these last samples produce something. Uh, yep, fingers crossed. We hope so. Okay. Yeah. In that case, can you give me a call tomorrow? <laughs> yes, of course. On Skype? Yeah, I can Skype and you in tomorrow. And you can either hear me scream with excitement or sobbing quietly <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Thank you, Guy. No problem. Hmm. Fingers crossed for that next set of results then, eh? We'll hear more from Guy at the end of this episode. But, in need of a change of scenery, I decide to make a rather large assumption and look to the future. If, and it is quite a big if, it feels at the moment... If we make it as far as the brew itself, I need to give some thought to the big day when I bring together all of the ingredients and produce that final beer. The, I'm still not sure how much we'll be making, exactly what equipment will be the best to use, so I decided to go to a real brewery, one that churns out beer day in, day out, people that know what they're doing and know their equipment. Emma Turner is Brewster at Guile59, and she kindly showed me around to chat about the kit that she uses on a daily basis. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm very well today. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me at the brewery for the day. So we're here to have a look at your equipment because I have my own version at home that I used to brew with, but it is much, much, much smaller, whereas you are an actual real <laughs> brewery. How much can you make in any one go? So we have a 10-barrel kit here that gives us about 40 casks per brew of a, a reasonable little sort of ABV beer, sort of 4 to 5%. We're producing about 1,600 litres, nearly 3,000 pints. Okay. So where would you start off in... Because I'm, I'm surrounded right now. We've got quite a low ceiling. One, two, three vessels in front. And then in the next room, we must have another seven or eight, uh, I'm guessing the fermentation vessels. And I can see what looks like 
an enormous gas hob as well. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get on to that in a minute, won't we? We will, yes. definitely, definitely. So, starting off, on my left, that's the hot liquor tank, am I right? Yes. For heating up the water. Heating up the water before it gets mixed with the malt. And you're out on the sticks here, so you don't have three-phase electricity. How do you do that? We have a wood burner that we <laughs> use. <laughs> Very rural. <laughs> we have a, a, it's a very efficient wood burner. It's, yeah. it's a lovely German designed wood burner. It has a, a lovely fan underneath. So it is incredibly efficient. It extracts all of the energy out of the wood that it possibly can. We end up with very little ash at the end. And then once that has got up to temperature, you add it with the, uh, the, the, the malted barley and you grind it down first. No, we don't. We buy our, our barley pre-ground. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have the facility here, or quite frankly, the space or the time. And, <laughs> the and the expertise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maltsters are very, very particular people. They know what they're doing. We, we're brewers. We make beer. Okay. So let the maltsters <laughs> do their thing, because they, they can do it properly. Yeah. And that mash done, is it, I, I, sh I should explain, I have been here before. I have helped John out, uh, the head brewer, on a day. I've been inside that mash tun, mm -hmm. and it is extremely hot mm -hmm. and hard work to get it clean again. Mm -hmm. um, how much barley would you put into there for an average brew? Okay, for an average brew, sort of between 300, 325 kilos. Mm -hmm. Okay, because once it's, it, it, it's finished the mash, that grain at the bottom, that acts like a natural filter, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. We have filter plates at the bottom as well. So you were, there'll be a tiny proportion of husk that will come through, but it's, it's a minimal amount. The, the filter plates, and as you say, the mash itself mm -hmm. will, will filter it through. Okay. And then once it's been pumped out, what do you do with the spent grain? Okay, so the spent grain, majority of it goes to a local farmer who mm -hmm. feeds his cattle with it. Oh, okay. um, occasionally, if he's got enough food, he, uh, he won't collect it, and it'll go out onto the fields, and the pheasants will pick through it, mm -hmm. so the estate pheasants will have it. If push comes to shove and we've really got nobody that wants it, it'll go into the field and be used as fertiliser, Okay. because there's still a little bit of goodness in there. Yeah. And how do you get the barley out of there? Okay, so you can see there's a hatchway. Yes, not right a very big one. Not <laughs> a very big one. You, you can fit through the hatch. <laughs> um, so you literally scrape it out. We, we scrape it out into a wheelbarrow now, mm -hmm. which I, th I think we've done since you came and did a brew with <laughs> us, actually. It's a lot easier now. I remember having to put it into individual sacks. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, now, now we've, we've gone up a gear. We now put it in a wheelbarrow and it goes into a tractor bucket. <laughs> <laughs> the progression of modern science. Absolutely, it's marvellous. So <laughs> yeah. much easier than yeah. having to hold a bag. <laughs> <laughs> so, once that sugary wort has come out of the mash tun, it goes into... goes into the coppers. So the coppers, um, they are heated by a propane burner underneath. These are actually commercial wok burners that you're looking at. <laughs> so they're very large, very, very large. We have a propane tank that feeds them. Mm-hmm. What actually happens in that copper? Okay, so in the copper, we've got a lovely rolling boil going. That will allow the hops to release all of their lovely alpha acids, which create bitterness, mm -hmm. which obviously we need in our beer. Um, 15 minutes before the end of the boil, we will put some protoflock in. Now, we use a, a seaweed extract, which allows the proteins to drop out of your beer, will improve the clarity. And then once that's finished for its, its hour or so, it goes into this shiny, well, 
pan, isn't it? There's not much in there. It's just empty. It is, yeah. I mean, essentially, this is a whopping great big saucepan. There's no element in it. Uh, there's normally, when we're about to use it, there's some filter plates in the bottom of it that just have tiny holes to allow the liquid through. Now, this is the hot back, and we will put our aroma hops in here. So the aroma hops will provide all of the nice spangly flavours that you, you enjoy in your beer. A nice aroma as well comes from these hops. What we'll do is let the wort come out of the coppers via a couple of hoses and sit on top of the bed of hops for around 20 to 30 minutes. It's just enough time to allow the beta acids to come out, which are the ones that provide your flavour. And why wouldn't you get those from the boil stage earlier on? If you boil for an hour, you, you'll have evaporated them, you'll have boiled them off. Oh, okay. So once it's been sat uh, here for 20, 30 minutes, what's next? Okay, so then we're going through this big heat exchanger that you see over in the corner there. Yes. Now, my heat exchanger back home is a small copper coil, which <laughs> leaks and doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping yours is a bit more efficient than that. It's a lot more efficient. This, this is the <laughs> same design as you'd see in your boiler at home. Uh, so you've got alternate plates in there that will allow two different liquids to go through. So you have one very hot liquid being our really hot wort, and then one cool liquid being our spring water. So we've got spring water coming in, hot wort going out, you balance the flow to create the temperature that you want to go into the fermenter. Okay, and then what happens to the cold spring water that's going into the chiller? So the cool spring water, which is now hot because it's taken out quite a lot of the heat from the wort, that goes into our hot liquor tank, which is where we start the whole process. So it's given the water a bit of a head start for the following brew. Saves a bit of wood as well. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's really efficient as well. Okay, so the now, now cooled liquid is off into a fermentation vessel. It is we into a fermentation vessel. Just around the corner here. Okay, so you can see we've got five fermenters here. We've got three, three different styles of fermenters. We have two of these big 10-barrel fermenters, mm -hmm. then we have two smaller 8-barrel fermenters, and then we have our beautiful, shiny 10-barrel fermenter with a lovely conical bottom <laughs> that is fully sealed uh, this can be used as a conditioning tank as well as a fermenter. So you can leave your beer in here for quite a long time if you want to. We don't. Um, normal standard beers where we just use a, a Nottingham ale yeast will be fermented out in seven to eight days on average. And how do you add the yeast? Do you just chuck it in? What kind of yeast do you use? Um, we use dried yeast here. We don't have the facilities to... Um, crop and, and propagate our own yeast, unfortunately, at the moment. And we'll, um, we'll use a yeast starter. So we'll use a very sterile bucket and cooled, boiled water and add our yeast to it, give it an hour or so, and the yeast will start waking up. It'll rehydrate and, and start, start waking up, essentially. So when you, when you pop it into your, your wort, it's happy, it's ready to go, and, and it'll crack on and do its job. And then, is that mm -hmm. the end of the journey? No, it's not. We then need to chill our beer right down. We've still got quite a lot of yeast that's still in suspension. That's not going to contribute too much to the flavour of your beer, apart from a lot of bitterness. And we've already added our bitterness with the hops. So we chill our beer down. At the, at the moment, for fermentation, we'll hold our beer at sort of between 20, 22 degrees. Before we rack our beer, which is putting it into a different vessel, we'll drop the temperature to about 8 degrees. So all of the yeast that's not viable anymore will drop to the bottom of the vessel. 
we'll be drawing out the liquid off, off the top of the uh, yeast bed and the yeast stays behind. And you mentioned racking. Yes. What do you rack into? Okay, so racking is basically taking your, your now green beer and popping it into a keg or a cask for conditioning. So you need all those flavours to just round off and develop. You need to create, you need the last bit of residual yeast to uh, have the opportunity to create a little bit of CO2. So you've got that nice, nice head on your beer. And uh, that can take another couple of weeks. So racking day, we'll have on this big, big expanse of floor that you see here, we'll have casks all across it that have been freshly sterilized. And then using, again, a sterile hose, we will fill them up, essentially, and then pop them into our cold room for a couple of weeks. We'll then check our beer before it goes out. If we're happy that the condition is right, it's got enough fizz in it, enough ni life in it, then it's ready to be sold and go out in the open market. And that's the end of the story for that beer. It is. Yeah. You've mentioned quite a lot the word sterile. How important is that to a brewery? It's incredibly important. Uh, everything prior to the boil stage needs to be clean, but not sterile. But everything after the boil stage uh, needs to be 100% sterile. So our fermenter needs to be sterile. All of the pipework leading to the fermenter needs to be 100% sterile. Yep. What proportion of your time would you say you spend cleaning either uh, this equipment or the actual brewery itself? Probably about 80%. Really? That much? Yeah, it's that much. It's not as romantic as people first think, is it? No, it's not. No, when, when, you're, when you're in a whopping great big vessel and you've got crusty yeast in your hair and you've been scrubbing at a crusty dried layer of yeast for half an hour and you're still not there... Yeah, the romance goes out the window. <laughs> <laughs> but we produce beer, so, you know, yeah, it's okay. fine. We can cope with that. Looking back to my setup, now I don't know how much beer I'm going to end up with. It depends mm. on the weather and the outcome and the yield of the various different ingredients. So it could be anything from 100 litres down to 10, depending on how badly the summer, <laughs> which is not looking good so far, how badly <laughs> the summer goes. What do you foresee being the problems of using kit as small as 10 litres? So the cleanliness would be one of my concerns. You, know, you can manage with a kit that size, but when you've then got your, your wort that is gently converting itself into beer, you need to control the temperature. And that's, that's hugely important. If you allow fermentation to go on in two or three days, which a, an enthusiastic yeast will do, your beer hasn't had the chance, the opportunity to develop the full flavors that you want your temperature in your vessel, uh, in your fermenter vessel, can rise up to you know, 30 degrees and you've just ended up with a big bubbly mess, really. <laughs> <laughs> Worst case scenario. <laughs> so not only do I have to have my current concerns now about just getting the ingredients through to the harvest, uh, following through the process that you guys or any other brewery mm. would do, I've also got to make sure that that yeast is kept in check whilst it's fermenting. Absolutely. Keep an eye on your yeast. Keep an eye on your temperatures. Make sure that you, you have clean hands when you go and take a sample out of your beer. It's, okay. it's common sense. A lot of it, the majority of what we do is common sense and being a little bit OCD and very, very vigilant. Okay. Vigilance and a little bit of obsession. Yes. Brilliant. Thank you, Emma. My pleasure, Ben. Thank <laughs> you. a big thank you to Emma for having me. Uh, it certainly made for a really interesting walk around the brewery. 
I'm going to need to spend some real time next month, I think, organising that mash, oil and fermentation equipment. That will work best for me. I mean, but the process will be fairly similar. Put the grain in hot water, boil the resulting wort up with the hops, and then cool it before adding the yeast and fermenting. Now, I, I just don't know how much beer I'm going to hopefully end up with at the end of this project. When we first got started, uh, when we talked about the potential yield of about 25 kilos of barley, we, we could have been about 100 litres plus. Now, if I'm honest, if we manage to get the full amount of barley off the plants that are left, I'd be lucky if I got about 40 or 50. And if I get any more problems over the summer, or it turns out the barley is not particularly good quality, or it's small grains or anything, or some disease gets in there, we could be down to 10, 15, maybe even single figures. And that's going to really affect what kit I use because a commercial brewery will be uh, using kit that brews by the thousands of litres. Next down from that, I could potentially use uh, a friend's pilot plant, which, which brews in just over 100 litres at a time. Your standard uh, kit you have if you're a home brewer could be between 25, 50 litres maybe. And then you're down to really small stuff. So I've got some demo kit, which can hold about eight or nine litres. But it's not very uh, consistent. It doesn't produce uh, the best beer, or at least... I haven't produced the best beer on it, and I desperately want to avoid using something as small as that. I'd love to stay above 20 litres. That's the ideal. So anyway, back on the plot then. I really needed some good news, and I was rather excited when Guy called me back with a little update about the samples they hadn't yet processed. Hello, Guy. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. And yourself? Yeah, not bad. Um, last time we spoke, uh, the first phase of the spring samples yes. weren't showing any kind of useful yeast. What's the second lot looking like? Uh, very, very similar, unfortunately. Okay. We've got a few more different species of fungus, but uh, no more, unfortunately, yeast types or species. Um, okay. Lots more of that Mechnikawia, which is the yeast for wine fermentation, but yeah, but not any Cerevisiae. Not any Cerevisiae or any other brewing yeast that, that would be useful. So that means we go to Plan B. Well, no, I guess it's a repeat of Plan A first, isn't uh, it? Yeah, a repeat of Plan A at a different time of the year when perhaps there might be more sugars available to the yeast to uh, feed on. Um, okay. Maybe a little bit warmer as well now. Uh, and then yeah, there's plan B, which maybe we can do actually even concurrently. Um, it's just to leave a, a small pot of wort out, sort of a low concentration sugar solution with a little bit of muslin over the top and hope that some yeasts naturally fall in there and start to ferment of their own accord. So what, the first week of August then? And fingers crossed, we'll get something... Uh, a little more fruitful, haha. -ha. Uh -huh. uh, then. Yes, yeah, that, that, that would be our hope. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, that sounds like uh, another, well, sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. Brilliant. Thank you, Guy. No problem. <sighs> I really, really hate July. We are less than four weeks away from harvesting. But it, it feels like we're clinging on by our fingertips. I don't think I've ever been this stressed 
I'm serious. I've had two children. Uh, three weeks ago, I would skip up the steps. I, I would pretty much run there in excitement to see how the plot had changed and how it was growing and how it was coming on. But now every time I get here, I have this nagging fear uh, in the back of my mind. Uh, whenever I see the weather forecast and there's wind or rain, you get this deep feeling of, I guess, dread in, in my stomach. I cannot wait to get the barley and the hops safely collected and ready for malting and drying. I mean, seriously now, hats off to the farmers who grow these every year. I mean, obviously, they are far more competent than me. Uh, they've got the proper structures. They know what they're doing. But to have so much depending on the weather has got to be tough going in a country as unpredictable as ours. Anyway, I could do with some good news. Uh, so I'm going to ask a favour. Um, if you've been enjoying uh, growing beer uh, and, and you've enjoyed the story so far and following me along on this journey, please do uh, rate the podcast. Um, go on to iTunes, um, give it some feedback, give it a review, because those really help to share it with as many people as possible. Um, and speaking of sharing, please feel free to tell others about it. Put it on social media, put it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it may be. It'd be great if I can get more and more people aware of the project and able to come along with us. Anyway, on to the next episode. Uh, when you join me next time, I, you know, I think I know where we stand. Uh, for the good or for the bad. I'll have dropped off another set of samples to Guy and David in the hope that there will be more yeast floating around in August than there was in June. And in theory, I should have harvested the barley and will be about to pick the hops. I'll also be looking forward to the final recipe and getting some advice from beer writer Mark Dredge as to which style of beer I should be going for. Or, on the other hand, I'll have ditched it all and fled the country to get some summer sun and forget my many, many failures. Either way, I should be in a better mood. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Goodbye.